All right, so we have moved on to uh, part three of our study in uh, covenant theology, an overview of covenant theology, and today we're going to be talking about the covenant of works, the covenant of works. And so um, I've brought trusty chalkboard up here again, and uh, hopefully that will help us in our study. I want to start off with a, with a review question, um, and then tonight is kind of going to be guided by questions as well. Uh, what are the elements of a covenant that we discussed last week? What are those elements? I see some of you taking notes and some of you regretting that you haven't taken notes to this point. By the way, you can still find these uh, online. Um, they are on the uh, church website and you can navigate to them under teachings and find them under evening service and, and you can listen to them again. They're being recorded. Uh, so if you want to go back and take notes, you can do that. All right, what are the elements of covenants that we looked at last week. We spent time looking at the five named covenants that are explicit and that are not debated at all. And what elements did we see in them? So we got two parties, right? So two or more, right? All right. That was, that was an element there. What was, what was the second element? There are stipulations involved. Right? Expectations that go with them. What's another element? Promises. And on the other side, sanctions, right? Promises or sanctions. Okay. What was the fourth element that we saw? This oath sign, right? We saw that this one maybe. Is not as um, consistent. There are times perhaps when it's not there, but we saw the presence of an oath sign. We talked about uh, marriage. We talked about how there's a sign of marriage. And actually, biblically, the ring is not the sign of marriage. It's the one flesh union. There are other things uh, involved in that. But that's, there's a sign that goes with it. There's a sign that reminds the parties of the covenant, of the pre presence of the covenant, right? And so whenever we see in the Bible... A covenant, we see these elements. And uh, pretty consistently, we looked across the board, we made a relatively extensive list just working our way through that, right? We saw those five explicit covenants and saw um, uh, those covenants between God and men and saw that these elements were present. Well, today, um, having reviewed that, we want to open up to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we're not going to read all of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, um, but we're going to reference it, and hopefully it's fresh in your mind because only two years ago I preached on these sections. It should be right at the top of your thought process, right? Uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, of course, is very familiar to us. Um, but what we want to do in looking at this, in looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is we want to see, are these elements present? Okay. Are those elements present in the discussion there in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3? And of course, uh, like I said, we're not going to read all three of these chapters. We're going to kind of jump around. Um, I trust you are familiar with them. And if you're not, uh, go home and read them tonight. It's, it's three chapters, and it's extremely important for us. Um, I want you to be familiar with them. 
So as we look at those, um, and we see the first element of a covenant is the presence of two or more parties agreeing together. When we look at the context of Genesis 1, 2, 3, are we seeing there uh, the presence of two or more parties? Yes. Simi says yes. So we're all going to agree, right? All right? So chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God, right? And God does these things and God says these things. So right off the bat, chapter 1, chapter 2, we see that God is uh, a party in this discussion. And He's the one creating everything. He's the one declaring it to be good. He's the one who um, organizes this, and He does it in six days, and he, all of that stuff, right? We saw all of those things present. What about a second party? Is there a second party present? Remember, there must be two uh, at least two parties in order to make a covenant. Do we see a second party present? What's that? The Spirit of God, right? Now that's interesting. He's hovering over the waters, so He's present. He's there doing things, right? Um, we, don't, we don't hear the Spirit speak or really interact. It's kind of a... Uh, the, um, we see Him working cr uh, creatively and those sorts of things. Um, and I, I wouldn't... You know, I would say this is the triune God here, so I would include the Spirit there. Who else do we see? What other parties do we see? Adam, right? So we see down in, in verse 27. Uh, maybe we'll start in uh, verse 26. If I could have someone read verses 26 through 28 of uh, chapter 1 for us, please. Nice and loud. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so we see a second party, the presence of a second party, and that's Adam and Eve. I'll just say man, I'll say mankind, okay? But uh, specifically, Adam, right? Creates Adam. We're going to see that's uh, as you move into uh, chapter two. There's there's um, the story is retold, uh, focusing on uh, Adam as the head of the race, as the one who's been given charge over all these things, etc. So we could say mankind. We could say Adam. Uh, and so many call this actually the uh, the Adamic covenant, right? Because of it's between God and Adam, right? So we do, have, we do have at least two parties here, right? And so we've got the very basic elements, and uh, we can proceed from there to making the covenant. And you see that even as we read through Genesis, it, God is the one acting. He's the one speaking. He's putting this all in place. And then He goes to uh, uh, create the man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a unique aspect about man, right? And we talked about this when we preached through this section, that, that man is uniquely relatable, as it were, to God. He's, he's created in his image after his likeness. There's a, something unique about us over against the, the, the creatures that uh, swim in the water, or fly in the air, 
and, uh, and crawl on the ground, right? And so uh, there's something unique about us. This is the culmination. This is the end. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and there to have dominion, etc. okay? All right, so we have the two parties. I think we've, we've, we've answered that pretty well. What about stipulations? Now, again, we're thinking uh, entirely particularly chapters 1 and 2, we see the wheels come off in chapter 3, and that helps us in certain ways. But uh, are there stipulations given? Are there expectations? So be fruitful and multiply. That's built into it. That's what we already read, right? So you see that being an aspect of it. That's the command. That's what they're to go and do. Be fruitful, multiply, and the result of all of that is have dominion, right? To, to exercise dominion over the earth. That's, uh, that's to be that... Um, that's their task. That's their job. That's their life, right? Um, but, but more specifically, is there a, a unique stipulation? Is there another stipulation we can find in chapters 1 and 2? 2.16? All right, so if, if we look at 2.16, and what do we see there? You may surely eat. So uh, the Lord God commanded the man, chapter 2 and verse 16, saying... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so a very specific stipulation is about this tree. Don't eat of the tree, right? And it's a very special tree, so I'll capitalize it, right? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, that's a stipulation. That's a very unique stipulation, okay? And uh, we, we could talk about uh, what we discussed there in chapter 1 that's, that's built into it, but this is the more unique uh, stipulation of this, of this particular situation. Don't eat of that tree. You can eat from any tree in the garden except that one, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Right? And so we see that it seems like there's a stipulation, there's a command there given, don't eat from that tree, right? Do we see promises or sanctions? Promises or sanctions? Remember, we're looking for the elements. Do we see those elements here? Yeah, what, what, uh, what do we see? Yeah, so that's a sanction, right? A strong sanction. Well, yeah, but it's a promise of a negative, <laughs> I would call it a sanction, right? So you're going to die if you do that. Break it and die. Which implies what? What's the implication? That's right. Don't eat of that tree, and there's the promise of life, right? So, uh, so you have life uh, or death, right? A promise. So we have those um, We have those promises, those sanctions built right into that passage, um, right? And we see all kinds of blessings, by the way. In, uh, in 128, we already saw the blessing. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And then all of chapter 2 is God putting together everything in a blessed fashion. This is, is going to provide all the food for them. It's a wonderful place to live and all, all that stuff. So we have blessing built into that right there. But most specifically, we have it here in uh, this instruction in 217, okay? Now, what about an oath sign? Crickets. What about an oath sign? 
Now, just like we're not certain, theologians are not certain, but I do think um, that there is an oath sign that there is there present. Uh, later, when, when uh, Adam and Eve sin and they're kicked out of the garden, what is the reason given for them being barred from the garden? The tree of life, right? Lest they take of the tree of life, right? So what, what, I'm, what I'm proposing here is that the oath sign for the keeping of the covenant is being able to eat of the tree of life, right? So the, the stipulation was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I think the oath sign is eating of the tree of life that that is consistent with, that's a part of uh, a covenant keeper as, as he gets to do that. One who is in this covenant, which I'm proposing is, uh, gets to eat of the tree of life. Now, you may think uh, that's stretching it a little bit, right? Um, the, the phrase tree of life occurs a few times in the Bible, two or three times in Proverbs, talking about knowledge as a tree of life and wisdom, you know, things like that as a tree of life. I think that's a, a different topic. That's talking about how those things give life to us, are, are energizing to us, etc. But if you will uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. So Revelation chapter 2, we're talking about the churches letters to the churches and in uh, chapter 2 beginning he's talking uh, speaking to the church in Ephesus and he has certain things to say to them but what I want to draw our attention to is verse 7 he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now this isn't saying that, you know, wisdom is a tree of life because it helps you get by in the world. This is something that has specifically to do with salvation. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Turn to chapter 22 of Revelation. So that's a promise to a church early on. Maybe that's a unique thing. Maybe it's debatable. Maybe it's confusing. I don't really think it is, but possibly. All right? But look at chapter 22, and we see tree of life mentioned a few times in there. It's present there in verse 2. But I want to see, uh, want us to look at verse 14, chapter, Revelation 22. So we're right at the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is connected with eternal glory. This is connected with what it means to be in the presence of God, able to enter the city by the gates. Verse 19, likewise, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this of, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And so I think I'm proposing, and you can disagree, and a lot of people do. Um, I'm proposing that the tree of life is the oath sign of this. And who gets to partake of the oath sign? Who gets to celebrate that oath sign? It's the one who is in right covenant relationship in this situation. The one who has kept this covenant. And so, 
when Adam and Eve sinned as they did, they were barred from the garden lest they go and partake of the oath sign, lest they go and pretend like they were covenant keepers. Now, I've always heard it taught, and maybe there's something to it, I'm not arguing against it, that that tree of life somehow gives eternal life, like it has, uh, there's, there's some, uh, there, there's, there's eternal life connected to it, and if Adam and Eve in their sinful state had partaken of it, that they would continue eternally in an, in an unregenerate, unsavable state. And so therefore, God was being merciful to kick them out. That's possible. That's possible. Uh, but when I connect this with Revelation, I think what we're seeing here is that this is an oath sign of that covenant. Okay? And so, um, I think, and I'm proposing, that this is uh, a covenant that we're seeing in the first couple of chapters in Genesis, that the very beginning of the book starts with covenant, okay? But you have an objection. What's your objection? The objection is the word covenant doesn't occur in this passage. It's not there. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an objection that we need to deal with, and that's one that uh, I have heard made before, right? The word covenant doesn't occur in this section. It's not because you have a bad translation. The word's not there, okay? The word just isn't there. So I want to deal with that question. Um, so here's how we'll deal with it. Um, where is it in the Bible that we learn of the Davidic covenant? What is that chapter? There are two, two different chapters. What is that chapter? Where do we turn to find the Davidic covenant? Second Samuel, close. Second Samuel 7, right? And First Chronicles 17, right? So both are, are parallel passages there. Second Samuel 7 and uh, First Chronicles 17. So let's go ahead and turn to Second Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of this. I will just tell you, and you can check me all you want. The word covenant is not here. Okay? You guys sent me to uh, find the Davidic covenant, and you took me to a chapter that doesn't even say covenant. Neither 2 Samuel 7 nor 1 Chronicles 17 mention a covenant. They don't use the word. All right? Now... We do see in other places that, of course, you're right to send me to 2 Samuel chapter 7 to find this covenant because it's where it's given and it's referred in other places. Uh, for example, uh, 2 Samuel 23, 5 calls it uh, a covenant made with David. Psalm 89, 3 and 28 uh, call it a covenant made with David. Psalm 132, 11 through 12. So we have other places in the Bible that refer to these very words in this very situation and say, well, that's a covenant. So the problem uh, that we might think we have by not finding covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is not a problem at all. Other places in Scripture point to it and say, well, it's a covenant with David. So you were right to send me to 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 19. Another one. Uh, we were just in Genesis chapter 3, and I trust it's fresh in your mind. Genesis chapter 3, what, what, if you had to sum up in one sentence what happens in Genesis chapter 3, what is it? Where sin enters the world, right? The fall of man, yeah. The word sin is not found in Genesis 3. It doesn't bother me because sin is all over it. 
right? It's just called by different names. But you see that Genesis 3, we understand that is about sin entering. That's about the fall of mankind, mankind falling into sin. So uh, the, the absence of the word is not a problem for me in this particular passage. For one reason is because I see these elements present. They're present there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, describing a covenant, though not using the word. Neither did uh, the Lord in 2 Samuel 7. Neither did uh, the Lord inspire the use of the word sin in the very chapter that pictures and gives for us the entrance of sin into uh, human experience, right? That's not a problem for me. That's one reason, right? It looks like a duck. It walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. Probably a duck, right? Uh, But there's another one. There's another reason that doesn't bother me, and that is because there is another place in Scripture that discusses, I believe, this uh, covenant right here, and that is Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7, remember, uh, Hosea is the head of the minor prophets as Isaiah is the head of the major prophets. And so right after Daniel, you get to Hosea. And Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7. And the ESV here says, talking about, the, uh, talking about unfaithful Israel, who continues in unrepentance, who has continued in uh, their uh, prostituting themselves, is the description that's given, particularly in Hosea, uh, very strongly, that they are selling themselves um, to these other gods, essentially. And they continue to do so. They can continue to persistently break God's laws, His commandments, unrepentantly, verse 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, does anybody have a version that read that differently? That used, that translated it different, uh, particularly the first part. What's that? Like men. And what does it say after that? Like men, they transgress the covenant, right? Now, what that's doing is picking up on the fact, kind of what we were talking about here, that the word Adam, Adam, can mean man, mankind generally. It can mean a male man, a a male person, not a male man. (laughs) Be a male man too, but... It can refer to the man Adam as well, right? So when we talk about Adam, the man, we're talking about, uh, we call him Adam. Well, the same word can mean a couple of different things. And one thing that they're picking up on there is that mankind transgressed the covenant. Okay, well, that begs the question, what covenant did all of mankind transgress? He doesn't say Israel transgressed the covenant. We would go right back to Moses. And we would say, well, there's the Mosaic Covenant, and clearly Israel has transgressed the Mosaic Covenant because look what they're doing. But it doesn't say that. It says mankind transgressed the covenant. What covenant was all of mankind a party to? What's that? This one right here, right? This one right here, all of mankind is bound up in Adam himself. So whether you translate it specifically Adam, the man, or you translate it as mankind, which I think is what they've done there, you get to the same point. How was all of mankind subject to this covenant? In Adam. Does anybody else have a different translation that reads differently? 
there is, uh, there is uh, an argument that says Adam is a city name. And if you go to Joshua 3, 16, I believe it is, and you see that uh, there, remember when Israel was crossing uh, the Jordan and the waters backed up, it backed up as far as the city of Adam. That's the only mention of the city of Adam in the Bible, un unless this one's talking about the city of Adam. And the only thing we know about that city is that once upon a time, the waters piled up there because of flooding, because God was working miraculously to stop that water. Okay, that's the only thing we know about Adam. Now, there are those um, who, who will want to translate this to say they, uh, but, but, but as they did at Adam, like at Adam, they transgressed the covenant. What they're saying is there was something special that went on in this city. They transgressed the covenant there. And this situation's like that situation. But a couple of problems. We know nothing about a covenant at the city of Adam. We know nothing about the city of Adam except that one day the water's piled up there. Right? And so this statement would make no sense to the reader then and makes no sense to us now. The clearest way to translate this is the way the ESV has done. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Calling this very situation a covenant, the covenant that Adam transgressed. And the behavior of Israel in the time of Hosea is like unto the behavior of Adam when he transgressed this covenant. Right? So we do have a place in Scripture that refers to these very chapters, that refers to this very situation and labels it a covenant. Okay? And so we call it the covenant of works. We call it, uh, there are a, a number of names for it, the Edenic covenant because it takes place in Eden. Uh, the Adamic covenant because it's with Adam. Covenant of creation because it's from the very beginning of creation and has certain things in mind. I think covenant of works is the clearest name for it. And so that's what we're going to call it um, uh, going forward in our study. This I'm going to call the covenant of works. All right? The reason it's called the covenant of works is because of this command that life and death dependent upon obedience Life and death depended upon Adam's works. So we call it the covenant of works. Okay? That's what we're going to call it. What is the covenant of works? We spent uh, time last week looking at the five explicit covenants that nobody debates um, the presence of them, they debate the meaning of them, but the presence of them, uh, we looked at um, the Noahic covenant and we looked at the Abrahamic covenant and on down, right? We looked at all of those uh, and identified them. We did not in that list identify the covenant of work, though uh, Parrish got a little bit ahead of us and he wanted to talk about the, the Adamic covenant and he just wanted to get here, um, but we're, we're holding off on that until right now, right? What is the covenant of works? Well, here it is. It's a covenant between God and Adam at the moment of creation, wherein Adam was to obey God's command, don't eat of that tree. There was a command given, and the command was specifically, don't eat of that tree. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam obeys that command and does not eat, he receives life. And not only does he receive life, but he receives life for all of his posterity. All of his offspring who come after him receive that same life if he obeys. In all of these covenants, the ones even that we looked at last week, there's an element that we didn't really talk about but is, is present in each of them, and that is the element of representation. That the one in the covenant represents other people as well. Right? So we talked about, for example, the Abrahamic covenant. That's a, that's a very clear one. Right? You and your offspring will inherit this, will have this benefit. I've chosen you, I've called you out, I've blessed you with these things and your offspring. And we see that continued even through the sermon uh, that we preached this morning talking about that same topic, that each of these down the line has in view not just God and this individual, but God and this individual who stands as federal head, as representative, as a public figure representing all of these others who will come after him. So Adam stands there representing all of his posterity as well, all of his offspring, all of those who will come after him. And if he obeys the commandment, don't eat of that tree. And if he obeys in that regard, he receives life for himself, and he receives life for all of his posterity as well, all of those who would come after him. He is a public figure, and he is going through a time of, of trial, a time of probation, we might call it where he is either going to obey or disobey this command, and there will be consequences that come to him if he breaks it, and there will be blessings and rewards, promises that come to him if he keeps it, okay? And those promises, those rewards affect his posterity. Likewise, if he obeys, he dies. And since he represents us, we die. He disobeys. Did I say that wrong? If he disobeys this and he eats of the trees, thank you, if he eats of the tree he's been commanded not to, he dies. And not only does he die, but his posterity dies as well. They inherit death. They inherit his guilt because he is the public figure standing in the place of all of his posterity, right? And so that's the nature of this covenant of works that God uh, creates Adam and gives him this stipulation, gives him these pro this promise, this sanction, and connected with that. Remember, he could eat of every tree in the garden except the one. What was the one he could not eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That means eating of the tree of life was fair game because he was still a covenant keeper at that point. He was still in right relationship. He was still obedient to God at that point. Eating of the tree of life is okay till the time of breaking that covenant comes. And now all of a sudden, the Lord kicks him out for a number of reasons, out of his presence, out of his garden, and away from that tree. What we want to keep in mind in this covenant of works is that he represents us. He's a public figure, as if, and I use the example of, you know, our government, our federal government, by the way, which means covenant government, if our federal government were to declare war on Antarctica, you and I are at war with Antarctica, okay? We're at war with them. 
And so all those Antarcticans walking around, right, they're going to be at war with us immediately too, right? But that's the idea of a public figure making decision on behalf of those that he represents or she represents. So here we have Adam representing us. We have Adam uh, taking his action, all right? So that's the nature of the covenant of works is this agreement that has consequences, consequences for posterity, all of Adam's posterity. The stakes are high, right? And of course, you and I know how that story went. But let's look at uh, where it's found in the New Testament. All right, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And we're going we're gonna to be spending time later on as well in Romans chapter 5. Uh, but I want us to see resident within the very heart of Paul's development of the gospel message. His understanding of how the gospel works. This is at the very center of it. As he's describing the nuts and bolts, as he's describing the inner workings, he comes to discuss this covenant of works. And so, if I could have a volunteer, please, to read. Uh, we'll have three volunteers. Someone to read 12 through 14. Thank you. You got it, Andy. Someone 15 through 17. You got it, Ryan. And then uh, 18 through 21. Tom, you can have that. Go ahead, Andy. All right, thank you. So we're going we're gonna to go through this quickly. I just want to highlight for us the representative nature, the description of the gospel that Paul gives right here in this chapter is representative in nature. It is covenantal in nature, and he's referring to this covenant of works. Not only that, but he's referring to this covenant of works, right? So look at verse 12 there. What do you notice from verse 12? Sin came into the world through one man. One man did the sinning, and sin entered the world right? Just as sin came into the world through one man, and that sin brought death with it. You see? 
Sin happens, death comes. Sin enters the world through one man's choice. Death enters the world through that choice, through that sin. And that death spread to all men. Because all sinned. How is it that all sinned? Yeah. How is it that all sinned? It doesn't say all have sinned. The Bible says that elsewhere. That you and I each have sinned. In, in, in our lifetime, we have done sin. This says all sinned. It already happened. You sinned in Adam. You weren't even there. Right? It took place in Him. You and I are counted as sinners, not because of the sin we've done, though we've done sin, and we certainly are sinners. We're counted as sinners not even because of the natural bent towards sin that we have in our hearts, though we have it, and it's called a sin nature. We are counted as sinners because we are in Him, our federal head. That's the way we're born. And so we are counted as having sinned because Adam sinned. We sinned when he, when he sinned. Did I say that right? We sinned when he sinned. Okay. Yeah, charge would be the idea of imputation. Absolutely. So it's counted on our record. Even though we didn't do it, we did it in him because our representative did it just like our representative declared war in Antarctica. So we did it. It's counted for us, okay? And so, he continues on, and he says, If sin is not counted where there is no law, verse 13, why did people die between Adam and the giving of the law? Adam was pretty early. The giving of the law was much, much later. The time of Moses, generations and generations and generations have passed. So why did people die if sin is not counted where there is no law, verse 13? Paul's answer is found in verse 12. Sin has already entered because of the breaking of this. Right? It's this covenant being broken that brings with it the consequence of death so that death has already entered the picture, though the Mosaic law has not been given until time later. We don't die for breaking of that law. We die for our first father having broken this law. So sin enters the picture, right? And so um, his sin counts as our sin because he represented us as our federal head. We look down at verse 15. Again, we're not looking at the entirety of this passage. I want us to see the covenant of works at work in this passage. Look at verse 15. The free gift is introduced in verse 15, and it can be compared and contrasted with Adam's trespass in certain ways. So the free gift is the gospel, right? It's righteousness in Christ. It's salvation in Christ. That's the free gift being discussed. He uses different language, but he's going to contrast it and compare it with this covenant so that we can understand uh, both together, right? The trespass, the trespass, so Adam, having broken this, brought death for many. He wasn't the only one that died. We continue to die. But in the free gift, in salvation, the grace of God and the, the grace of, of Christ superabound for many. So death came to many through this, but even more so does life come to many. And there, there's a lot going on there. Is it easier to make something that's alive dead or make something that's dead alive? Which one is harder? And yet the gift of life takes those things that were dead and makes many, many alive, right? It superabounds. 
Okay, verse 16. The one sin of Adam resulted in judgment and condemnation. One sin transgressed that one little thing, ate of the fruit. The one sin of Adam resulted in judgment and condemnation, says Paul in verse 16. But the free gift that follows many transgressions, many trespasses, the, one, the free gift that follows that results in justification. Right? There's a, there's a, there's a, a superabundance of God's grace that is greater but can be compared to and understood by examining this covenant. Verse 17, because of Adam's sin, death reigns through him. Death reigns through Adam. All those who are in Adam die. The free gift, the free gift, those who receive that free gift of righteousness will much more reign in life through Jesus. Adam's, Adam's reign is temporal. Adam's reign can be overcome. The reign of Christ is eternal and cannot be overcome. Verse 18, Adam's sin led to condemnation for all who are in him. Christ's one act of righteousness, that is his completed work, I think, leads to justification before God and eternal life for all who are in him. That's like the summation of Paul's argument here. He's saying, in the covenant of works, we all died. In his unrighteousness, we inherited. In his death, we get to live too. In his sin, we follow suit. But in Christ, the new federal head, the, the last Adam, we see Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification before God and eternal life to everyone who's in Him. He, our covenant head, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, it's hard not to in this topic, He has successfully navigated and completed and fulfilled that covenant, and we who are in Him by faith receive all of the benefits. Just like in Adam, by being in Adam, and we didn't have to believe in Adam, but we receive the consequences of being in Adam. Being in Christ, you receive the benefits that are due to Christ because He keeps the covenant. He is the righteous federal head, and by faith in Him, we inherit those promises. Those things become true of us, not because we did them, because He did them, and we are in Him. You see the parallels between the covenant of works and salvation in Christ. Verse 19, again, Adam's sin made, made sinners out of many. Christ's obedience makes the many righteous. There's a parallel here. And this, this understanding of get, getting a grip on the covenant of works and thinking about what Paul is talking about here and elsewhere in, in Romans chapter 5 about, about Christ, federal head who keeps covenant and the benefits that come to us, will, will change your understanding. It clarifies the gospel in ways that, 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 that are hard to explain. As I was working through that, as I was as I was uh, trying to answer these questions and working through these things, not having these categories in my mind. The passage demands the categories. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're born in Adam, you receive all of this. Consequences. Thank you, Adam. But in Christ, the life we receive because of what He accomplished is glorious. He, our federal head. So, I'm going to close uh, with just a couple of comments. What does the covenant of works matter? I think you already know. I think you already know. Just having this 
understanding of how the gospel works is so clarifying, is so helpful when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're, when you're thinking about your salvation for yourself, when you're thinking about life, when you're reading through the Bible and trying to understand what it says, having this category in place helps enormously. Well, what does the covenant of works matter? I've got, I've got a couple of points that I want to say and then a quote I want to read. The first, the covenant of works helps us understand the nature of our sin. Are we sinners because we have sinned? Or even do we sin because we are sinners? Why are we sinners? How did we get there? When were we counted to be sinners? How can God be just in imputing someone else's sin and its consequences to us? How can that be okay? Because Adam, our federal representative, went to war on our behalf, and we inherit the consequences. He broke this covenant, and we bear those consequences. He represented us as a public figure, and so we bear those consequences. And so the covenant of works helps us understand the nature of our sin. Secondly, if we deny the covenant of works, we end up denying the active obedience of Christ. We're going to talk a lot about the active obedience of Christ. Frankly, I preach on the active obedience of Christ a lot. It should be, a, it should be though I don't always use those words, the concept of Christ having obeyed the law and kept the law and that credit being given to us, that's this. What we're talking about here, we're talking about the covenant of works. I've, not, I've, I've alluded to a number of times the covenant of grace, which is, which is parallel. And, and the two help us to understand one another, or these two covenants together. Christ obeying on our behalf is crucial. It's not enough for Jesus merely to have died to pay the penalty for our sins, thus wiping the slate clean, and we're going to go stand before a holy God with no righteousness? Yeah, we've got no demerit because it's been wiped away in Christ. We've got no you know, mud all over us or whatever, but we're naked in His presence. We must have righteousness to stand in the presence of righteous God. Where do we get that righteousness? Jesus Christ, our federal head. That's where we get it. That's how we can stand before Him, both with the, 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 the sin taken away and the righteousness credited. So now we stand before Him, not just not smeared in mud, but naked, but dressed in Christ to stand in God's presence. We must have the active obedience of Christ. And if we deny the covenant of works, we end up denying the active obedience of Christ. I want to close with a quote from um, Sproul that is quoted in this book uh, by Pat Abendroth, uh, Covenant Theology. It's a, a new book that has come out. But he, he has an excellent quotation here from Sproul that is worth pondering. It's on page 62 of the book, by the way, if you have it. He says, at the heart of this question of justification and imputation is the rejection of what is called the covenant of works. What he's saying is it's easy to go astray. You're going to go astray with justification and imputation uh, if you reject the covenant of works. That's what he's arguing. In this work of fulfilling the covenant for us in our stead, theology speaks of the active obedience of Christ. 
Without Christ's active obedience to the covenant of works, there is no reason for imputation. There is no ground for justification. If we take away the covenant of works, we take away the active obedience of Jesus. If we take away the active obedience of Jesus, we take away the imputation of His righteousness to us. If we take away the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we take away justification by faith alone. Are you getting scared yet? If we take away justification by faith alone, we take away the gospel and we are left in our sins. That's what's at stake. That's why it matters for us to understand this, to, to think about our covenant head and what he accomplished on our behalf and how Paul points out the last Adam in Romans chapter 5 who has kept the law, who has obeyed in every way, whose one act of righteousness, his completed righteousness is credited to us. It's ours by faith so that we inherit life. We inherit righteousness, justification before God because of what he accomplished. He did all of that. And so it's important for us to understand this covenant of works. And I wish I could... Uh, it, it leads naturally into the, the covenant of grace, and, and, and you wanna, I want to talk about all those things, but you've got to draw the line somewhere today, right? And so I'm drawing the line here, right? But what a blessed thing. When we think about the covenant of works, I remember first encountering that term, and I thought, oh, that's terrible. Those people think that, uh, that salvation is by works. Salvation is by works. It's just not my works. It's His. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, and we will become more grateful as time goes on and as we learn more and understand better in eternity for this redemption that we have in Christ, that, that though Adam failed in our, in our stead representing us, we, we know we would have done the same, but he failed and we received those consequences. And we are so grateful that you sent Jesus, your Son, who entered into covenant with you to keep this very covenant of works and give to us the credit for it having been kept by Him. We are grateful for Jesus, our Savior, our federal head, our representative, the public figure who stood in our place, who accomplished this redemption for us, who has full righteousness that He freely gives to us by faith. So we rejoice in Jesus our Savior. We rejoice in this gospel that we get to ponder, that we get to be saved by, and that we get to take to others that they might be saved as well. May we, may we understand this gospel. And may we rejoice in Christ our Savior. And we pray in His name. Amen.